The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Thank you, Tim. So I'm going to continue on this series of talks talking about like efforting or making something happen or determination, resolve, you know, these types of things. And uh, I'm touching into some of the lists and stories that aren't so commonly spoken about. They're definitely in there in the suttas. I'm pulling them out of there, but uh, not as often spoken about. And in some subsequent talks, I'll talk about some of the dangers of what I'm talking about, but I'm not there yet. So right now we're just going to talking about, uh, you know, just this movement towards an aspiration we have, or we have an inspiration, and then how do we carry through? And what are the things that get in the way, and how can we find our way through to what's important to us, what's meaningful to us? So I'll say very briefly that um, I started this series talking about the five factors of endeavoring. And those five factors are confidence, vitality, integrity, energy, and wisdom. And then I talked about, uh, the next week I did a talk on setting an aspiration and then having this resolve to go pursue that aspiration. And I did that with the story of Prince Bodhi, who didn't want to make any effort towards uh, doing something that was important to him. Instead, he was hoping that the Buddha would make all the effort. And uh, that didn't work out so well for Prince Bodhi. (laughs) And then uh, last week I talked about, well, why don't we do these things that we set out to do? We really want to, our heart is set set on them, it's meaningful for us, and why don't we? And I pointed out another quality that the Buddha talked about, kanti, which can be translated both as tolerance and as patience. Because the reason why we don't do things, it's hard. And it takes time. <laughs> it's not a secret. Come to find out. We're, I think we're all kind of secretly hoping, right, that they'll be hoping that there'll be some secret teaching that'll make a difference. But even just this idea of Kanti tolerance and patience, just to cultivate it in really small, mundane, everyday settings. This is exactly how it gets cultivated. We don't wait until the really hard stuff arrives. Instead, we start where it's easy. We always start where it's easy. Like, why not? That's the best way to go forward. So, Tonight I'm going to start with um, a little story, a brief story. And this is with uh, Bharadwaja, who the farmer, Kasi Bharadwaja. And this was the first day of the, um, of the planting season. This was the time of year when they were going to plant. And Kasi Bharadwaja is a Brahmin. He's a priest in this Brahmanical tradition and was doing a big like festival and ritual and all these things to for, to start the season of planting. Makes sense, right? If you're the kind of the whole community depends on the crops surviving. It's not like they can import easily from other places where they didn't have this logistics that we have today. So a lot of importance on having the crops 
work. So there, of course, there were these uh, festivals at the first day. And so here's a description of the festival that comes like 800 years after the time of the Buddha, and they're like filling in the details, but I I kind of like this. uh, So there's this festival, there's 3,000 oxen were present. This is a lot. <laughs> we don't have to take the numbers literally in uh, in the suttas and uh, certainly in Pali. There's not as much emphasis on precision. There's more emphasis on just big, bigger, biggest, you know, and so 3,000 is a big number. So 3,000 oxen and all their horns were kept with gold and their Hooves were kept with silver, and they were adorned with fragrant garlands. So they put the decorations on the oxen. I like this. It uh, brings a nice uh, image to mind you know, for this festival. And then there were 500 people, and all of them were wearing clean white clothes, and they also were wearing garlands and were garnished with had some flowers. And Kasi Bharadwaja, he was the head uh, priest, and he was going to lead the festival. So he took a bath. It's so funny that this is in the details, right? He took a bath, trimmed his beard, and anointed himself with fragrant scents. So he got all dressed up. I'm I'm sure this is before, right? They have all that stuff, but... um, he had two rings on each finger, so he had 20 rings, and he was wearing earrings, he had a turban on his head, a garland around his neck. I'm not sure, I think these garlands are made out of flowers, but they also might be made out of wooden beads, I'm not sure. And then um, he does this ritual with uh, milk and rice, and then he offers this milk and rice to the 500 people that are about to take the 3,000 oxen and start the season. So a lot of people, a lot of animals. This is a big thing. And you can imagine how much effort it went into to prepare for something like this. I don't know if they literally had gold and silver, and but clearly just time to decorate or, you know, the animals and oneself. So as it happens that the Buddha was nearby and... He had this sense that uh, maybe this uh, Kasi Bharadwaja, he could find some more freedom. So he approaches and as if he's on alms. So here's this person who just did this big ritual and this festival and he's feeding all these people, sees the Buddha. He was just wearing robes and has a bowl, right? And is looking for a meal. And um, Kasi Bharadwaja is a little bit uh, irked about the Buddha. And he says, I plow and sow, you know, sow seeds to plant. I plow and sow, ascetic. So he's just calling the Buddha ascetic, like just this generic word. You're somebody who is just like a wanderer. I plow and sow, ascetic. And having plowed and sown, I eat. You too must plow and sow, and having plowed and sown, you can eat. Saying like, there's no free ticket here, that uh, you have to do the work. And it's we reap the benefits of the work that we've done. So just like Bharadwaja, he thinks the Buddha should do the same. 
And the Buddha replies, I too, Brahman, plow and sow, and having plowed and sown, I eat. And then uh, the Brahman says, but we don't see your yoke, your plow, your oxen. Like, where's, if you're really a farmer, where's, why aren't you participating in this festival? And where's all your implements and animals and things like this? So then um, Bharadwaja, he uh, decides, okay, I'm going to speak in verse. And this happens a lot in the suttas. When there's like an important conversation happening, it often shows up in verse. So whether they actually spoke in verse, or whether this event actually ever happened, of course, I don't know. But So here's uh, Bharadwaja, what he says to the Buddha. You claim to be a farmer, but we do not see your plowing. Tell us about your plowing so that we can understand your farming. Okay, how do you farm without plowing? And then the Buddha, he gives a number of different descriptions of how he does it. I'm not going to talk about all of those. Maybe at a future time I will. I want to focus on this one stanza where the Buddha says, maybe I should say that um, he, the Buddha, says that he plows with wisdom. So his blade is wisdom that like cuts through things. And I'll unpack that a little bit more in a minute here. But the Buddha says, energy or effort is my beast of burden, carrying one towards security from bondage. It goes ahead without turning back to where one does not sorrow. So he's saying, energy is my beast of burden. So of course, a beast of burden, that's like an oxen, something that's like pulling something that's heavy or carrying something that's heavy. So the Buddha, he's like saying, just as the Brahman Bharadwaja, just as he is using an oxen and he has this blade that's like breaking up the earth, tilling the earth, I guess. And then this blade, when it goes through, it uh, like severs these the networks of the all the roots of the weeds or whatever is growing there, so the way that he's tilling it. And so the Buddha is saying, in the same way, he has this plow of wisdom. So the blade is wisdom, but rather than having oxen carrying the blade, it's effort, energy or effort. That's allowing this blade to go through. And rather than severing all the roots of the, tr- of the weeds, it's severing the defilements, these uh, roots of unskillful behavior, unskillful things in the mind. And then, the se- so the energy is my beast of burden. And I try not to think of the Rolling Stones song when I hear this, right? Do you guys think of this? <laughs> And then the second line is uh, carrying one toward security from bondage. And so we could say that nibbana, awakening, is the security from bondage. Like, what are those things that hold us back? What are the things that we get tied up with or that uh, push us around? You know, that kind of this idea of bondage is like something that's preventing you from doing what you want to do. So you have security from bondage, so nothing's standing in the way. 
can do whatever you want. So this no longer being pushed around by our incessant desires or these uh, things of trying to get away from something or or the concerns that we have. We want to look good or we want to feel comfortable all the time. No longer being pushed around by all that. And the third line is, it goes ahead without turning back. So the Buddha is describing his plow goes ahead without turning back. And this is in contrast to, of course, like the Brahmins, right? Reaches the end of the field, it has to turn around, it has to turn around, goes back and forth. And then, of course, next season has to do it all over again, however many growing seasons there are in a year. But it has to be done repeatedly. But this this plow of wisdom, something that I appreciate very much, the Buddha is saying, it only goes forward. It's not like you regress with our practice, we're going forward. It's true, we have some insights, we have some new understandings, which we totally forget later, and then we learn them again. But that's different than going backwards. There are times in which uh, we don't have access to our greatest wisdom, or maybe we um, are under a lot of stress or illness or something, and we don't have our full capacities. But this path goes forward. It never goes backwards. I don't know, I, this is like such an obvious thing, but for me it feels, um, I know, meaningful that each, whatever we're doing for practice, whether it's just one moment of mindfulness or listening to a Dharma talk or um, behaving ethically or having some compassion or kindness for others, it's always supporting this movement towards greater freedom. Always. Always. It's always going forward. And it's always talk- and it, what's also being spoken about here is this irreversibility of some uh, experiences that we've had or even some attainments that we've had. Specifically, the Buddha here is talking about you know, some degrees of awakening or insights. Like once that happens, you can't go back. And the way that I think about this is kind of like once you've learned to read, you can't unlearn how to read unless, you know, there's some dementia or something like this that's happening. It's the same way. And then the last line, to where to where one does not sorrow. In some ways this is all what we what we all want, right? To not have sorrow. And again, this is pointing to Nibbana, awakening. So this idea that wisdom is the blade and energy is what is helping this blade go forward. So rather than oxen, it's energy or effort. One thing I'll say is that um, oxen, often, not always, are like there's two or four or six, there's a, a number of them, and something that I appreciate about this is that the same way energy, sometimes we're with others and maybe our energy is low and theirs is high and we can borrow some of their energy. Or maybe there's a way, just like in the same way that we practice here together, being with others, maybe you sit a little longer than you would if you were at home or pay more attention or do something differently when you're with others. 
So there's a way that doing things with others can be a tremendous support. It's not always a support. Sometimes we have to do things on our own also. But there can be a way when we talk about energy or effort, there can be this real sense of like, I have to do this. I must do this. But I don't think we should ever underestimate the power of practicing with others. What a big support it is for whatever it is we're doing with our practice or wherever we are in our practice or however we feel about practice. So this idea of energy moving forward, virya is the word, sometimes translated as effort. How do we keep this energy going? How do we keep this effort going? We might have some initial inspiration, something or aspiration that really motivates us, but what can continue to motivate us? And especially after like it's gotten difficult or it's gotten tedious or it's gotten boring or, you know, just so many reasons or maybe something else turned out to be more interesting and just kind of our enthusiasm has petered out. So I'd like to talk about another list. Of course, right? There's no shortage of lists that uh, gets interpreted so many different ways. Um, partly because um, it's one of those, it's amazing, the word, this word is really, really long. I tried to memorize it before I came over here. Let's see if I got it. It's uh, Chanda Samadhi Padana Sankara Samana Gatta. That's one word. <laughs> There's like 40 some odd letters in it, right? It's, just, it's a, So what it is, it's a number of words that are stuck together, but... So because it's such a long word, and uh, which has all these different parts, and it's not clear how these different parts are related to one another, that there's a lot of different interpretations on what does this really mean. And it's never explained anywhere in the suttas. It's just this. So I uh, recently heard a talk by a Dharma teacher, James Baraz. Maybe some of you know him. He uh, teaches in Berkeley. Wonderful teacher. And he uh, interpreted this in a way that I think is really fun and interesting and helpful and relevant to what we're talking about here. So this word that uh, I I gave one of them is, uh, it's a collection of these four qualities. I'll call them qualities. And um, the collection itself is called the Idipadas. There's lots of different ways this word idipada gets translated. Roads to success, bases of power, foundations of potency. You know, you can, idi and pada, these two words get together. And some people, some teachers, some scholars relate it specifically to uh, the cultivation of samadhi, some collectedness. But others don't. And James Baraz, he applies it to motivation. What is it that motivates us? What is it that uh, keeps us going when we really don't feel like going? And what he did, which I think is really interesting, he says that these four idipadas, we could maybe understand them as four temperaments. There's four different 
things that can motivate people. And some people tend to be motivated this way, and some tend to be motivated that way, with this recognition that if we understand this about ourselves, then we can really protect and cultivate this little flame of motivation, what what supports this motivation in ourselves. And I appreciate that Maria Popova, she's a writer, she wrote, we are each born with a wilderness of possibility within us. Who we become depends on how we tend to our inner garden. So James Braz is pointing to, let's tend to our inner garden. And part of the way we do that is to recognize for ourselves which one of these idipadas is the way that uh, our motivation shows up. So the first one is chanda. So it's chanda samadhi padana sankara samana gata. Chanda. This can be translated as zeal or enthusiasm. So somebody who has this is kind of a way of their orientation or their temperament has this spirit of adventure, like, okay, let's just go for it. Let's just do it. Let's jump in. You know, they kind of have this uh, feeling like, all right, let's just go. They're like inspired or on fire. We're like, yeah, okay, whatever. We're going to just do it. Maybe maybe that Nike... uh, Logo, let's do it. And some people, maybe they feel this way about teams, some of their sport teams, like they're, you know, this tremendous fans and they just have all this enthusiasm and go, yay, and are really supporting the team or learn everything about the team or whatever it might be. So this is chanda. Or maybe for some people, this, they have this enthusiasm for being outside going for walks, hanging out in nature. Or maybe they have chanda for a particular cause. Maybe they have some activism that they do, or there's a cause that's something that's really important for them. And I know for me, I I certainly had this chanda, this zeal or enthusiasm at the beginning when I first discovered this practice. I felt like, wow, it really spoke to me some kind of way and I had this like voracious appetite to learn about it and to practice and explore. And maybe some of you had the same too when you first encountered these teachings or this practice. So chanda, zeal or enthusiasm. And we could, all of us, we could just have this query, where do we have that in our life? Do we have this enthusiasm or zeal? Is there a way that we can nurture it, whether it's for our spiritual life or our um, dharma practice, for anything in our life, it's worthwhile to really acknowledge and honor that. This kind of this uplift, vitality, these different words we could use for zeal, enthusiasm. The second idipada is virya, energy. This word virya shows up in so many lists and in so many ways it's a little bit different. So in this way, there's this uh, way that we might, sometimes virya gets translated as perseverance and that's kind of the slant I'm going to take here. 
So maybe there's a way in which there's like some determination or this uh, resolve. Like it's not through enthusiasm, but it's like, okay, I started and I'm going to finish. Even though this, I don't, maybe I've lost uh, enthusiasm for it, but, you know, I started it, so I'm going to finish. So there's this coming from this, maybe this inner strength of, or this sense of it's important to finish things that we start. This way of being undeterred. And there's this way I could say for me, the way that this uh, shows up, is when I'm on long retreats. I've done retreats that have been months long. I have quite a few retreats that are months long. It's just natural. After I've been there for, you know, quite some time, you're like, really? Am I still here? (laughs) They're just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. There's still two more months or, you know, something like this. This just arises. Of course it does. But there's a sense, okay, no, I started this, I'm going to finish. I'll find my way through this. And even though right now I'm feeling completely unmotivated, doesn't mean I will always be unmotivated and I'm just going to go to the next sit or, you know, whatever is needed. Maybe sometimes what's needed is to go for a walk in nature and feel buoyed and nourished that way. So is there a way that there can be like a commitment maybe, commitment to practice or just the sense of, okay, I started, I'm going to finish this uh, resolve or determination. So that's the second. For some people, that's the way that they're built. I know somebody who's very much like this and it's really impressive. They just have this kind of like this doggedness, like, nope, I'm going, I'm no matter what. And I can be that about certain things. There's a way of kind of like just putting my head down and going, you know, just getting it done. And it's not always the wisest thing to do, but is there a way that we can think about ourselves? When do we have that sense of determination? Can we honor that, respect that, and maybe even cultivate, allow that little flame of determination to glow brightly, flame brightly? flame brightly. The third iripada is citta. And many of you know that this word can be pronounced, uh, translated as either mind or heart. They didn't make a distinction between mind and heart in, uh, in the time of the Buddha. And I like that James Baraz for this, he's done when you've been touched by the Dharma, like you've fallen in love with the Dharma, like it's touched something inside of you. There's like something resonating with it. Where this, um, maybe, and it um, can like fuel this intense desire for like freedom, for more. Like this, it often happens after you've had a flicker or a glimmer or a glimpse of something. Some more ease, some more peace, some more quiet, some more freedom that you didn't know existed until you started practicing. And that certainly has been the case for me. This is the reason why I went on these long retreats. is because there was something that I just felt like, uh, I don't know, I had like touched into, I had like a little glimpse of something and I couldn't even necessarily articulate it clearly. 
but this uh, this wish to okay, I, I want to go this direction. No, not even quite sure exactly what it was. And I would say in my role as a Dharma teacher and a retreat teacher now, I see this a lot in students that go on retreat because they have touched into something and they want to find their way towards that. And of course, this can get in our way too if we're trying to recreate an experience we had earlier. So instead of this wish to recreate exactly what we had before, maybe to focus in instead on the desire, the, the, the wish for to touch that again. So instead of focusing on that thing out there again, it's about focusing on, oh, this, this uh, energy here, this desire for it. And then you might say, but wait, Diana, aren't the, aren't the Buddhists supposed to be down on desire? <laughs> Are they not supposed to like desire? And um, somebody did ask uh, Ananda this exact question. Wait, is there supposed to be desire? But uh, you talk about uh, the freedom from desire as uh, Nibbana. And then Ananda said in response, Venerable Sir, is it true that you had this desire to go to the park? But then when you got to the park, that desire no longer was there? And the person said, yes. And he said, it's the same with this. With all these idipadas. Did you have enthusiasm to go to the park? And when you arrived there, the enthusiasm's no longer there. And same with citta, this heartfelt uh, wish to go, this desire to go. So these are things that help us along our path, but as we're finding more and more freedom, they just, they're not there. They're not needed anymore, and they just naturally fall away. They're not an impediment. Well, they they can be an impediment, but they don't have to be de facto. And then the fourth one, this fourth uh, idipada, vimamsa, which is, we could uh, translate as investigation or curiosity. Like this way of like, wow, I had no idea that this was all going on in my mind before until I started meditating, right? I think this is the first insight that everybody has. As soon as you start a meditation practice, you start to see like, oh my gosh, I tried to stay on the breath, but my mind was going everywhere. It turned out not to be so easy. And there can be this way of like, what else is happening in there? What's going on? And can be this curiosity or this wish to explore or investigate one's inner life, the mental inner life and the emotional inner life. And this sense of, wow, this is fascinating. Maybe like in a way that uh, you go to a museum, natural history museum, for example, like, wow, I had no idea. Look at this. So it's not so much that we have to figure it out and we're trying to solve a big problem. It's just like going to the museum. It's like, it's uh, interesting and fun. To be sure, the things that we discover in our inner life, some of them are not all fun. Some of them are rather disappointing. Really? I don't want to be like that. We discover 
our impatience. We discover our ill will. We discover our, how our mind is going all these different places. That's okay. We practice with that. We practice wherever you are, whatever's going on. Practice meets us exactly where we are. And maybe I'll say for me, this uh, studying the suttas and learning Pali has been, for, for me, it's been a big part of that. I just enjoy it. It's just fun. And it's uh, about practice and it makes me think about my own practice differently. And it makes me think like, okay, how can I support others differently? It gives me some new ideas. And I know for me, it's fun. I'm, I'm one of those one of those types of people. So these idipadas, these four idipadas, chanda, zeal or enthusiasm. The second one is virya, energy, effort, perseverance. Third one is chitta, which uh, I'm emphasizing here, uh, like being uh, the heart being touched and having this heartfelt wish or desire. And the fourth one is vimamsa, investigation or curiosity. And it might be easy to think like, okay, Edipodas, I don't, haven't heard about this very much. It must not be very important. But it's one of the group of, it's, there's seven sets. So there's this uh, 37 wings to awakening, eight factors, eightfold path, seven factors awakening, five faculties, five powers, four foundations of mindfulness, four great efforts, I'll talk about these in a later talk, and four idipadas. All of these are required for awakening, according to the Buddha's teaching. So it's there in this list of things that are to help us support this movement towards nibbana, towards greater and greater freedom. Idipadas. And with that, I'll end and open it up to see if there's some questions or comments. Hi. Uh, could you discuss the third idipada? Somehow that is kind of eluding me. What? Yeah, I'm trying to do a little sleight of hand with it and hoping that you're not noticing, but you did notice. So, chitta. This, so mind or heart gets translated, and I'm putting towards heart. And so just uh, something that, uh, like the heart's desire, you know, something that, um, let's see, like this way you just fall in love with the Dharma, or falling in love with practice, or something like that. And this is something that can provide energy, like it can help us like continue or go forward. It's not helpful. It's better than nothing. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so it it did gives a gives me a little thing to hang on to there. So. Okay, so I'll offer you another. As I said before, 
this, these words, right, are so long and so many different people have interpreted them in so many different ways. I'll give you another interpretation. Let's, you can try this one on chitta, this, which uh, can be mind or heart. And if it's mind, then some people focus on awareness, like just knowing what's happening. There's a way in which we just, to be aware of what's happening, be present for our lives is provides energy and a way to go forward. It's a way to feel like, oh, I'm living my life fully. I'm, I have awareness. I'm here. I'm not uh, off in uh, the past or the future, but I have this awareness that's here. So that's another interpretation of this third idipada. Would it be fair maybe that to think of that as sort of a, you've, you've started a virtuous circle? or Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I would say all of these are like virtuous circles. And maybe there's a little bit of enthusiasm, a little bit of effort, a little bit of love, and a little bit of curiosity. Maybe you mix them all together, <laughs> make a super in a cauldron, and then that's what helps us uh, go forward. Maybe it's sometimes we need a little bit of this, maybe sometimes a little bit of that. I think we all have these inside of us, but what James Barrows was pointing to is that there's also ones that are more accessible to us and that show up in other areas of our lives. And he was talking about, like, you know, cherish these. Like, really take care of these temperaments, these what supports us making effort, and to notice them for ourselves. So maybe chitta for you isn't one. Maybe there's another one that is uh, feels more accessible. Thank you. Uh, so this is my first time here. Welcome, um, welcome. Thank you. Um, yeah, I really appreciated your talk, and I've never heard of the what? Is, what are they again? The Idipadas? Yes. What what sutta is that referenced in? So there's a whole chapter in the Samyutta Nikaya that's called the Idipada chapter. So it's I don't know. Do you know the the Nikaya? I'm I'm actually in the process of um, doing the Majima study uh-huh. that you and Gil, um, uh, I guess, have published in the Sati yeah. Center. Yeah. So yeah. I'm just starting into like a more in depth study of the suttas, but. Um, Anyway, but I guess I have both a comment and a question. Mm -hmm. One is that virya Mm -hmm. shows up in all of the lists, it seems, right? And so, you know, you were talking about all of these different um, factors or all these different kinds of qualities, but it's just interesting to me that virya, as I recall, is in virtually all of them. And so just it's curious to me why there's this um, duplication um, of that, and then also, I guess for me, when I think about chanda and what provides that motivation or that prompt to just continue down the path, um, it occurs to me that, in my experience, there's this intensely, just like, it's such a pleasant experience. It's like that that pleasure that's not of the senses, right? And once you get a taste of that, that it's 
that to me is what really is so compelling. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that wasn't really mentioned in your talk, but I think it's sort of noteworthy, at least in my experience, to know that there's so much pleasure that one can attain through this practice as well, and that that's a big part of, I guess, what keeps me motivated. So anyway, so I just just wanted to make that comment and also just see if you can speak to why Viria is so often uh, duplicated in so many of these lists. Yeah. So also maybe we could have imagined that you're maybe the pleasure is the maybe we could even say it's the chitta kind of like this desire for more you've had a taste of something and uh, fallen in love with it and come, yeah. going after yeah. it so I guess I'm the one with the chitta <laughs> and then the reason why Viria shows up everywhere so remember this is like of course thousands of years ago and there was a lot of philosophy and religion happening then right the conversations and some of it was like well, do the are there gods that do everything, and we're just pawns, so we don't have to do anything. It's all predetermined, and so the Buddha was emphasizing: no, you have to put effort. You have to. The gods aren't just moving us around like pawns. We have to do effort. So that's why it shows up in all these lists, just to recognize there not there's no passivity, just complete passivity. Well, and there's also this element of like, ugh, it's work, you know? Yeah. Um, But there does seem to be sort of like a payoff at every point as you're progressing. Yeah, yeah. And and it is work, right? Because also kind of what the Buddha's, not kind of what the Buddha's, he is pointing to undoing some of our patterns. Right. And to undo a pattern takes work. Right. Okay, thank you. You're welcome, you're welcome. Hopefully uh, brief, but I was trying to understand, so question and then maybe follow up, but uh, what were the 37, was it wings or the list of? Yeah, so often they get translated as 37 wings of awakening or wings towards a way, bodhipakia, something. So it's uh, uh, aids to enlightenment is how it literally gets translated. Okay, of which the idipadas are part of? Mm-hmm. Okay. What I'm trying to... I guess, uh, understand the motivation for understanding the idipadas, like in particular, is, um, yeah, I'm trying to understand maybe the role that they play in particular out of 37 <laughs> wings, let's say, but the thing I can come up with is it sounds like they're very particular ways to realize impermanence, you know, but yeah, I guess I'm trying to say, what in particular do the Adipadas, or may they you know, yeah. guide us to? This is a great question, and it depends on who you ask, because how it gets uh, interpreted. There is a, a legitimate way in which you can um, interpret these to be about samadhi, and so it could be like effort and samadhi, because like the chanda, samadhi, what, what, I'm not going to go through that. Um, it's so it could be like just to allow the mind to get really collected or something like that. And maybe it's a concentrated effort, maybe is how some people might think of uh, the idipadas. But it's fascinating how they're never explained anywhere, yet they're part of these 37, and lots of different Dharma teachers have different ideas, and most Dharma teachers don't talk about them because 
it's yeah, it's a little. We're not quite sure what to do with them. Starts here. <laughs> starts you. here. Yes. Hi, I'm not sure if this is. I understand what you were saying more or less, but I'm having a problem with procrastination. Big problem with procrastination. So any tips you have, <laughs> I'd gladly accept. Yeah, I had something, there was something just recently that I learned about procrastination. Lack of motivation? Yeah. You know, it's not arising it's not in my mind right now, but I'm going to, I'll look into this and I'll talk about this. Because, right, I think we all do this at some extent, you know, in some settings, all of us do some procrastination, I think, so. Yeah, this is a good question. It's a good question. But <laughs> and I'm trying to think like um but even like something like this uh could help too. Like, well, what is it that gives us energy and can we tap into that to just notice what types of things motivate us? Is there anything that motivates us? You know, anything in our life and is there a way, what can we learn from that? And can we borrow some of the energy from whatever else um, motivates us? But this is a legitimate question, procrastination. The Buddha didn't talk about this in particular. In, well, he did talk about practicing with urgency, with a sense of urgency. Hmm. But I'm sorry, I don't have anything right off the top of my head that's specific about it. Thank you. Okay. So we're at the end of our time together. So you're welcome to come up and talk to me if you have some more questions. Otherwise, I wish you safe travels home and enjoy the rain. <laughs>